0: In our turbulent times, we fail to understand the importance of family with multiple kids to build a strong society. We push aside any thought of our historical identity, both spiritual and temporal, and we struggle to know how to express our faith publicly in society. Our guest today, Archduke Edward von Habsburg from the Royal Line of the Habsburgs, brings clarity to this confusion and charts for us a way forward that can bring true freedom, peace, and purpose. Stay with us.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Uh, We are your hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. And uh, we have a very special guest today that we're uh, extremely excited to have on. But before we get to that, we just want to put on your radar the upcoming uh, launch of the Catholic Gentleman membership program known as Catholic Gentleman Plus. That'll be coming on June 1st. And it's something that uh, I think you'll really enjoy. We have been working on a lot of special content, exclusive content that will be made available uh, to men to help help you grow in holiness, ultimately. Um, so we're really excited about that launch. Stay tuned for more news as that um, date approaches. Uh, but we've been working really hard on that, and we're excited to share it with you. Um, but without further ado, we are extremely excited to have uh, Archduke of Austria, Edward Hobbesburg. Uh, He is Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta. Uh, his family uh, is, is royalty through and through. They've reigned in The Habsburgs have reigned in Austria, Hungary, Germany, Spain, and quite a few other places. Um, Edward is a diplomat and social media personality, and his wife, Baroness Maria Theresa von Gudenis, if I'm saying that right, have six children. And there, Edward is the author of several books, including children's book, Dubby the Double-Headed Eagle. I love that, uh, as well as volumes on Thomas Aquinas, James Bond and Harry Potter novels and screenplays. So there's very little that he hasn't done. So thank you so much for being with us.
2: I never inhaled. That's one of the things I've never done. No, I've never <laughs> taken drugs. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs>
1: thank, you for thank you for
2: having me on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs>
1: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, you just, um, launched a new book, uh, the Habsburg way. Uh, and I love this because, uh, you're one of, um, you know, Europe's most prominent, you're from one of Europe's most prominent, you know, uh, royal families. Um, and, uh, people are casting about for some kind of tradition or something that's a little more stable in our uncertain times. I mean, you, you know, I, I, I've, heard a lot of people kind of just despairing at the world situation right now. Everywhere you look, there seems to be political problems in in almost every nation. Um, you know, rapid inflation, uh, people are struggling to make it economically. You know, religiously things are are kind of in chaos as well. And so it seems like pretty much everywhere you look there's uh instability, chaos, uncertainty. Um and What you're really doing uh, is is calling us to uh, a different way uh, in our times. And so I would just wonder what inspired you to write this book um, and why now?
2: The genesis was very easy. A friend of mine suggested I should write a book uh, for Sophia Press on the Habsburgs. And I said, I don't just want to write another family history, because they are very good family histories, They're very professional ones, written by historians. And I said, I want to do something else. And uh, last year or two years ago, I gave a talk in Boston, and um, I was introduced to the audience, and they told me, listen, you talk about your family, and but don't just talk about Catholic faith, because some people in this room are not going to be Catholic. So I said, said, "Okay, what other things are cool about the Habsburgs that non-Catholics can appreciate? that's how I began sort of making that that bucket list. And I began writing, OK, what what would be a a typical Habsburg rule? And then I gave that talk one evening. It it was longer. It was 10 uh, 10 points. And um, and then when when they came with the idea for the book, I, I, I grabbed that list again. And then I began just sort of leaping through my different Habsburg books from over the years and looking for elements. And I said, wow, there is something here. And when I began doing that, I began to think and said, wait a minute, a few of these things have gone out of fashion. And then I said, why? And then I said, well, we live in a time, as you just said at the beginning, Sam, uh, we live in a time where people seem to be a bit lost, where people are glued to the screen, don't face each other, but just uh, the computer or the phone all the time. And where a very strong prevailing um, mainstream is trying to tell you that you can be something different every day. You don't have to take any responsibility. You only live for yourself. You are alone all your life. Take most of it that you can get. And I said, why don't I try to, to put a few things to paper that our grandparents knew and, and the last 10,000 years before that. And uh, and propose them again, but <clears throat> under the guise of this being Habsburg rules, which they are. And, and what I then do is, for each of these topics, I go through history and I say, how did Habsburg try to live this rule, this rule, this rule through the centuries? And why does it make sense? With the idea of saying, okay, now how are you going to implement this today? And how could we have a bit more of this in our society? That's the idea of the book.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. That's just terrific. I mean, literally every single point that you touched on was what the Catholic gentleman is fighting for and, uh, and to reclaim. And, and actually, one of those things that I wanted to start with was this uh, section on, on marriage and having lots of children. Both Sam and I uh, have lots of children. We both have five. And uh, and um really blessed to have them and and excited and you and we know and we argue that you know family is the backbone of society and we even take it a step further and say that you know where goes the father There goes the family and there goes you know society and so i'd love to hear from you just a little bit more about the strength of society dependent on marriage and strong marriages and having children and then some some incredible stories that the Habsburgs have been able to display throughout the ages so
2: well uh i mean you you run through an open door as we say in europe because this is a topic that's very dear to my heart. Oh, I not only believe that family and children and lots of children will give you long-lasting happiness as a couple and will be the greatest gift to your children, the greatest gift you can give to your children is to give them many siblings. It's really, I can tell that now when my youngest is now 14, uh, 15, mm. sorry, she, oh, she would be very cross, 15. <laughs> and the <laughs> eldest, eldest is 26, and... Uh, I see them interact today and I just say, they have such strong bonds, they're such a team, even if they're spread over several countries. They always interact, they always care for where the others are and they have each other's backs. I mean, it, it sounds roasting, but that's the way it is. Um, but my, my other point is, society doesn't work without family and society doesn't work without numerous families. And my theory is, if you only have one child, This child will have a hard way of learning the basic virtues of life. Uh, If you have six children like we do, or five, which is very generous, they automatically will learn everything they need to know to build a just society
0: Mm -hmm. around
2: the dinner table. You will learn everything at home. You will learn to care for others. You will learn to look out for the weaker. You will learn that you sometimes have to moderate what you say because other people might be terrified by it. You will learn that when somebody's crying, you should be the one listening. You All these things you will learn in a, in a large and numerous family. And uh, and it takes away... The parents don't have to do that much. It, it, it happens automatically if you have a big family. And this is the basis of a state that is full of solidarity, of love, and... Uh, and looking after the weakest members, be that unborn children, be that people with handicap, or be that the imaginated. You learned this at home, you learned it in, in a big family. And I just imagine it must be much more difficult if you grow up alone mm. with both parents working away. Uh, so this is my experience, but this is also the Habsburg experience. Now the Habsburgs, of course, um, were Catholic. Um through the centuries, uh, always in the last eight hundred years, so having a big family was the most normal thing in the world and uh, and uh, if you read my book, you will see many, many examples of that uh, but but uh, for today's world, this is the answer. It's strongly countercultural. You yeah. have to defend yourself if you have a big family. Um, but it is the thing it is the answer and the the ultimate point is if you have a big family, it's like, how do you call it when the wagons make a circle uh, so the um, the enemy can't get in? You yeah. have a sort of fortress where they can't put their wires into your brains there. The family is sort of a safe space where you can share values. So strong endorsement of family for everybody listening.
1: Yeah, I love that because uh, I think, you know, we, we look to um, us in America, at least, we look to the old world, you know, Europe, like, as if you know the big Italian family or you know the the big German family were still a thing, and yet we know that's that's changed um and to the point where um there's a population decline happening um really globally because people aren't having children anymore. but I love the way you express that about family being like a safe place, a fortress where you rely on each other and you learn to love in that context um as a really beautiful way of putting it. But you come from, one of Europe's oldest families. I personally can't imagine being able to trace my roots back uh, 800 years. Um, And you start your book off with uh, a great little uh, chapter introducing what it was like to grow up uh, a Habsburg. So, you know, this is probably the uh, first and last time that we will uh, have nobility on our show. Um, But what was it like growing up uh, an archduke? What was it like growing up in one of Europe's oldest most prestigious families, uh, and uh, how did you kind of internalize that reality and grow into that as a as a boy and as a young man?
2: That's a very good question. Um, I uh, first of all, it's really cool to be part <laughs> of such a family, but yeah. but you you have to um, you have to learn to cope with that uh, because uh, I would say. Being a Habsburg offers you a ready-made identity. Mm. Um, First because of your family history, and then because of the expectations of people. It's like you have a little spotlight flying over your head all the time. People Mm. look at you in a different way, and they expect you to be a certain way. And what that certain way is, is is for you to find out. And uh, this is also part of my book, What Do You Stand For If You're a Habsburg? But... um, but it's really cool. You have cousins all over Europe. Wherever you go, you uh, you can you can stay at at family. Uh, that is that is really cool. Um, you grow up with a strong sense of roots, of history, where you belong. You, if you don't want to belong to that, you have to make a conscious step out of it. Mm. You can say no. You can rebel rebel against it. You can say no. I don't want that. But it's a really nice family. You know, we're not famous for backstabbing, massacre, and conquests. We're famous for marriage, family, bringing countries together, respecting the diversity of different countries within the empire. That's that's really, that's really cool. And I, what, what I tell in the book, and what is really what really was my way of understanding that I have to look into my family history, was whenever in school, um, the teacher said. Uh, but this is a topic Mr. Habsburg surely can tell us about because the Habsburgs pop up almost in every century in the last 800 centuries of European history. So mm. whatever you talk about, there'll be a Habsburg lurking somewhere and they expect you to know all about it. But you don't, of course, when you're a child. You might have, you know, caught snippets from your parents talking at the table about Emperor Franz Joseph. You may have an idea about him. But somebody mentions Emperor Charles V of Spain, and you wouldn't even know which century that is. So you blush and you uh, you decide that I will have to look this up when I come home. <laughs> um, that's the way how you grow into it. The other thing that you also do is that you sometimes your father or your uncle takes you to an event where you suddenly have you know a, a remembrance celebration for uh, some emperor who died 150 years ago, and there would be people who would look at you and the other family members with in their eyes. You suddenly mm-hmm. think, wow, what is this? Uh, and, and then they, they would be shooting, you know, this, this, these people in traditional uniforms with their old historic guns shooting in the air uh, as a salute and something like that. And they sort of look at you and expect something. And you, you realize, wow, 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 wow. I can't just sort of live uh, my way in a normal I have to understand what this is. What-. And also, if you're from a family that ruled over 600 years, what's, what's your job today? What's expected of you today? How does that translate into the 20th century, 21st century? Um, so that that's the way you become a Habsburg. And that is helpful because you have cousins all over the world. So you have big family meetings where you interact with other Habsburgs. And, and you see, okay, they have the same dilemma. They try to understand what are we supposed to mm. do today? Okay. So that's more or less how it how it goes. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah, no, that's really exciting, and it and it's unifying in a way. And I, and I think that uh, <clears throat> I wanted to actually continue forward with this thought right now, and and how you're encouraging men to embrace their identity. So on the Catholic gentleman, we talk frequently about our identity as sons of God and as you know, men created in Christ, renewed daily by the Holy Spirit, and these sort of things. But you bring it down to a very practical, temporal level. And I will say that uh, in preparation for this episode, I was unaware how the habsburgs had uh you know influenced my family in a way uh having my children are eighth generation texans which we're really proud of right i married into it uh um, i live in texas very proud of that and then to find out that uh the hobsburgs installed uh the first governor of texas back in the 1600s uh was was pretty moving and your your reach is everywhere and and so i just <laughs> i i and later on i read this uh you know it, it, the quote that famous quote from um otto von Habsburg, uh the son of uh, blessed Carl, who if If any of our listeners remember we had david ross on talking about that but he said those who don't know where they come from do not know where they are heading because they don't know where they stand and i think this is so important and in and especially in today where we're actually being either uh gaslighted or we are called to like somehow reject our history and not uh not accept and endorse and you're expanding this beyond just you know you're really amazing dynasty and, and you know, royal lineage, uh, but for each of us and the importance of our standing our identity, and I'd love for you to talk just a little bit more about how that influences culture when men actually understand their identity and, and trying to live that out.
2: Yes. Uh, you, you told me you have a book about chivalry behind you.
0: That's right. Um, I
2: believe that most most of us men dream of being knights in the service of a king. Mm-hmm. Um uh, one place where I where I feel it very strongly is in my Catholic faith. Uh, thank God, my faith encourages me to kneel down quite a lot. And mm. there is this old saying that you' never you're never uh, bigger than when you kneel in front of God. Mm. Uh, this is something that strongly influenced me all my life. the humility to know I take my sword, I take everything I do from the hand of God. It's not me deciding about my life. Uh, I I bow under a, a greater a greater ruler, and my life is at at the feet of God. And uh, this is this is a chivalry element that all of us are looking for and striving for. And um, and w- we've been told to throw all of that away, uh, but it's ridiculous because uh, you know one of my one of my most frequent things that I say is we are able to read a letter of Seneca. This is 2,000 years ago. We are able to read the Odyssey and the Iliad and understand it, understand the emotions of the heroes of the Iliad. That's 2,600 years ago. How can you ever say that, that man changed? We are mm. the same. Mm. No, nothing magic happened in the 60s that transformed us into superhuman being. No. Nothing magical happened when Internet arrived. We are the same. We're the same play... That we've been, and I, and my theory is 10,000 years ago, the same clay. We struggle with the same, and the same things are attractive and lift us up above our, our urges, lift us up above our everyday treadmill. We want to aspire to great things. It's easier when you're a Habsburg, because as I told you, yeah, but in my book, I encourage everyone to live it, because not all Habsburgs lived what they were, but those who did really became great, great characters.
0: Mm, thanks be to god
2: that's wonderful and
1: and kind of following up on that um related to you see in our culture there's like this fascination and simultaneous contempt for royalty like you said like every man like kind of wants to be a king at some level and yet Mm -hmm. uh and you see this like in and like these modern you know secular not not christian men's movements you know they're like we're we're kings we're royalty you know? and like but um people don't really understand what that means and you know and, and we see also too you know in in the, the history of recent history of europe kind of this attack on royalty uh, both politically and even militarily sometimes where are these, these these wars to kind of undo the last remnants of Christendom um, and coming from this, you know, historic royal family and like, uh, how do you, uh, like, what does royalty have to say to the modern world? Like, is there still a place for that? And how do you understand, you know, your position as kind of the, coming from this great lineage, this history, and, you know, being nobility yourself, like, how do you understand the, the place of royalty and what does that have to teach us as men today um uh
2: in, in in the modern world uh in one chapter in my book i i speak about my experiences when i got the chance in my in my youth in my teenage years to get to know some of the current rulers in europe uh kings uh, and and grand dukes and princes uh when they were in training and i understood an incredible amount about what what royalty can bring to the table and what modern politics has somehow lost. Um, if you grow up as a future king or queen or grand duke, you grow up in an attitude of service all your life. You know that you have to serve your country. You know that you cannot do whatever you want, but whatever you do has to serve your country, keep it alive, keep it united, keep it in peace. All your actions. If you live in a country with several languages, like the King of Belgium, you will learn not to use one of these languages more often than the other, just out of trying to keep your country together. Mm. Um, you will get to know all the fault lines of a country. You will get to know all the parties, and you will never uh, go to go to this to your service in an attitude of egotism. You also don't have the luxury to be in politics for a few years and then find a nice fat job somewhere at the big company and earn lots of money and have a nice uh, evening of life with a yacht and something like that. You don't have that because you will serve until you you don't serve anymore. And then your son or daughter will take over and have to live with the consequences of what you do. Um, so this is all part of the concept of, of royalty and of monarchy. Um now most of the monarchies today in Europe are very, very weak um, echoes of what monarchy used to be once, but they are still there. God bless every single one of these royals that want, they serve, that serve with with gracious, with great. And if you if you look at the way that, for instance, Prince William treats people when he speaks with them, uh, mm. behaves. When you look at the Prince of Liechtenstein, when you look at the Prince of Luxembourg. And you see the way that they interact with people, that they serve their countries, that they speak. This is gracious people who speak from deep experience, wisdom, and an attitude of service. Um, and, you know, we live in a time where people are are have become nervous about their politicians. They don't trust them that much anymore. We had two very difficult years where many people had the impression that some things didn't go really well. And... Um, and I, I want to take one little episode from my book here, uh, when President Roosevelt uh, visited Emperor Franz Joseph uh, mm. in 1910, I think, and uh, and he had a half an hour um, audience in in um, in the Hofburg in Vienna, and uh, and Roosevelt, you know, wanted to rile the emperor a bit, just just a little bit, just a little bit. Mm. So at the end of the conversation, but. You know, your majesty, now that we have parliaments and politicians and governments, what exactly is your job? (laughs) And the emperor said, my job is to protect my people from their politicians. Nice. (laughs) And I ask you, who protects uh, us, the people from our politicians nowadays? Um, So I'm just saying, this is not the pit for monarchy. The United States are not the place for monarchy. But for the values of monarchy and for the values that make uh, monarchs examples in um, as as political leaders, and we can ask these values, these rules, these 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 principles. We can ask them from any politician. So I, I want to give one one strong example. One very strong example is, of course, blessed Emperor Karl, blessed Charles, that you have a book um, by by Charles yeah. Coulomb, Um when Blessed uh, Charles, you know, he is, for me, the most uh, chivalric of all uh, Habsburg emperors. First of all, he fought in war. Uh, he was in the trenches. Um, but also, uh, in, the, in the eyes of the world, he's a loser. He mm. took over the empire after 70 years of uh, Franz Joseph, nearly 70 years. In the middle of a war, he lost the war. He lost the empire. He only ruled for one and a half years. Twice he tried to return to Hungary, where he was still king. Twice it failed. He went into exile. He died on an island from a terrible bronchitis called uh, lung disease. That's the ultimate definition of a loser. Uh, first view. But now if you look on, the, on, on my, my Twitter world championship of the Habsburgs that I did over the last uh, six, eight weeks, uh, he won. He's the most popular Habsburg. Why? Because he did what every one of us can do. He offered his life, his family, and his job to God. And uh, when he was in Madeira, there was a moment afterwards, his wife was told, he looked up to the church, and he afterwards told her he had offered his life for his people. He had said, God, take my life so that my people can be in peace. And when he was suffering and dying over two weeks and he had horrible pains, he always said, I have to suffer very much so my people can be in peace and together. Mm. And I, I asked myself, this is a spirit that I would like to see in some of our political leaders. What are we ready to give for our countries? We, and you know, we as men, we aspire. This man was lying in bed, but he was a knight on a battlefield. He fought this battle with the eyes towards the Lord, they had the Blessed Sacrament in the next room, so he was always watching. And he also said, "If the Blessed Sacrament or my devotion to the Blessed Heart wouldn't be here, I couldn't survive this. I couldn't. I couldn't stand this suffering. But with it, it's, it's not difficult. And this is this is chivalry, this is knightlyhood. This is, and everybody can do it. You can do it lying in bed." With your fingers clasping a rosary, with, if, even if you can't move your body anymore, you can be a knight on the battlefield. And he was that. That's why he's the great example for our family. Yeah. That's
1: yeah right. I, just to, to uh, Just to comment on what you're saying, the complete opposite of what the world says is what kingship is all about. Uh, you know when you again when these kind of like secular guys say like i'm i'm a king you know like they, they usually mean like i'm this powerful man that like gets what i want out of life and other people serve me um but what you're describing is is the exact opposite and uh you know sacrifice service uh loyalty like um just that attitude of of constant sacrifice for others like that's the exact opposite of what the world says kings should be
0: yeah, exactly. And I just, I feel that's what was coming yes. to my mind while hey, you were you... talking. Yeah, please. No,
2: no, no, go ahead, John.
0: No, that's what was coming to my mind as as you were talking was this, you know, this idea of monarchies or or royalties as somehow power hungry, uh, you know, profit driven and controlling, you know, uh, nobility, uh, instead, as you've already done a great job discussing with us, it's that it's really protecting, uh, the, the liberty and the freedom and the peace of the people. it should be the intent of them. And then, and that actually goes into my next question or, uh, to point of conversation uh, on subsidiarity which you do such a great job uh defining in your book and i think it's so important and I, I imagine a lot of our listeners don't understand subsidiarity so i would love for you to kind of define that and then talk about why it was so important to the hobsburgs and why it's so important today when we have issues like the same-sex marriage and stuff that here in america that's being uh pushed upon us from the federal government but even at the state level it shouldn't be pushed upon us you know as it's something you know within the family and so we talk about that and I'd love to just get your thoughts to to really dive further into that.
2: Well, John, you put it very well. I think the the, the magical word of subsidiarity, which is um my my third chapter, well, my third uh, Habsburg rule, um is is the absolute antidote to globalism. And most people feel the threat of globalism. Mm. They feel the threat of decisions being made on a level that is so far removed from the democratic legitimation yeah. that we poor little worms never will have any influence on those big decisions that are being made far above even state or, or federal level you know you have sometimes the impression these things are being juked out in different places than uh, the political places that we vote for um so subsidiarity is the absolute opposite of that subsidiarity is the principle that the lower level should do what the lower level has to do, and that the higher level should be weaker and should only interfere if, if it can do something and is better able to do something than the lower level. That's a very, very vague. I'm not a political philosopher. But what that means is, uh, for instance, in Europe, in the European Union, Hungary decides to make a law that protects children in schools from uh, gender propaganda. Mm-hmm. The whole of Europe freaked out. They freaked out. There were yells and screams and Brussels tried to do everything to break us on this. But this is the exact point. If, if, if the European Union consists of nations and nations have sovereignty, then they should have the right to do that because this is closer. We human beings are local human beings. We have family, we are homestead. We are perhaps township. The state is already quite a high level, to speak with American images. The federal level should be really weak. This is something that fits with with humanity, with us humans. We're built like that. And the Habsburgs did this from the beginning. Now sometimes they did it better and sometimes they did it worse, but it was a principle. I can quote Charles Charles V, who lived in the 16th century, who writes to his son Philip II, if you rule over different nations, you have to respect their rights, their languages, their habits, their local institutions, and you really have to respect them. If not, you're in trouble. Mm. And this is in the 16th century, and um, and uh, f- uh, Emperor uh, Leopold said to no, it was Ferdinand II said to his sub- subjects in other parts of the world, "If I ever take away uh, your local rights," Um, then uh, then you can strike me down, or something like that. So this was always an element. The Habsburgs only once or twice tried to centralize, and when they did that, it went terribly wrong. We're not made for that. And the United States, are, we in Europe, we are looking with hope towards the United States, because you still have this. The United States are built upon this system in theory, the township <clears throat> should be strong. The state should be a bit less strong, and the federal level should not be very strong. But there are other other powers within within your system, and um, I'm I'm very strongly encouraging uh, to think about these things because this is the answer to the fears that many people have nowadays, where they feel that we we don't count. But democracy should be something. Listen to the Habsburg defending democracy. Um, <laughs> Democracy should be something where the people should vote for politicians who put into practice what the majority of the people think, correct, and not something where decisions are being made on a level so far above that our election will never have uh, an influence on that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, There needs to be a lot of uh, getting back to basics with with political uh, powers in in this time. And, And I think you offer a really a common-sense way of approaching that, Um, and I love that. My last question is, um, you kind of conclude your book with uh, a wonderful reflection on a good death, and that's something that uh, our, well, I wouldn't say our culture, I would say the whole modern world doesn't deal very well with. We spend a lot of time, a lot of money um, trying to ward off Aging, death, all of these things, and live as long as possible. Um, and yet, you're actually inviting people to not uh, run away from death, but to actually die well.
2: Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Just kind of in conclusion. Yes, I, I would. I would say the the story to <clears throat> to explain what the Habsburg stood for. Is, is very easy. Is uh, If you watched the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth, and I think that half of the world population did watch the funeral and was touched by it, there was a moment when the, the coffin of Queen Elizabeth was slowly lowered into the floor of the crypt. And, uh, and while it was lowered, they read out her titles. And everybody was very touched by that. But I, of course, I laughed inside because I compared this to the Habsburg knocking ritual, which was similar but then quite different, very Catholic. Um, I I, I was present twice at this Habsburg ritual and it it exemplifies why the Habsburgs live with their their eyes on the final moment of their life. so the coffin is being brought in, in the center of Vienna, is the Kapuziner Kirche, it's uh, the Church of the Capuchins, And beside that is a door, and there you go down the stairs, and down there is the crypt of the Habsburgs, the Kapuziner uh, Gruft. And the coffin arrives, the, the, the pallbearers, and then you have the master of ceremony knocking at the door. And from inside the voice of a Capuchin priest answers, who is there? And then they read out the titles. And the titles are Zita, Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary, Queen of Croatia, Queen of Bohemia, Princess of... And they they, 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 they read all 30 seconds of titles. Hmm. And the voice from the title says, we don't know her. And then uh, they, they, they knock a second time and then they read all her achievements. And the voice again says, we don't know her. And the third knocking is Zita, a poor sinner. And the door opens. This is the attitude of the Habsburgs. They were strongly conscious that they were poor sinners, that they were weak, that they were under uh, original sin, that they had to render accountability to God, not only for their spiritual life, but also for what they did as an emperor all their lives. That's why I believe that politicians who believe in something are something positive, because you can hold them accountable to their values. Um, And and they knew that the way I die will decide about my eternal life because they believed in, in, in heaven and hell. So some of the Habsburgs, unfortunately, didn't, in my opinion, didn't do this really well. But most of them did. And what they did was they they prepared in life. You cannot just believe that when you are going to die that you will, you will be ready for God. If you don't. If you don't prepare your entire life for this, if you don't learn how to pray, if you don't learn how to pray a rosary, if you don't learn, for instance, how to pray when you have headache and fever and are tired, you have to train this during your life to be ready when the moment comes. You don't know how God is going to send death in your direction. You have no idea. Maybe something that dropped on you. It may be an accident. It may be slow death in a hospital bed. You don't know it. You give all of this to God. You ask God for a good death. And the Habsburg had the, the extra um, situation that their death was always public. So every Catholic in the in the realm looked at how the emperor died, and it was known how he died. There was always uh, a bulletin about it. Um, I think this is fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. We have we have put death into very distant hospitals, or sometimes in a violent form. We know when there is an attack or something. We have, we see images of death, but uh, this is part of our life. Always was. And I, I strongly encourage everybody to prepare for death and to, to embrace the moment of your death and to to give it to God. And say, I take it the way you send it. Thank you very much. And because it's part of your life. It's one of the mm-hmm. greatest moments of your life. Um, I, it's easy to say that now. But the experience and family experience confirms this over and over and over again.
0: Wow. Yeah, thanks be to God. Well, I am just really grateful for all of that. So speaking to our listeners, men, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'm going to put in the show notes, uh, all the links to get uh, the Habsburg way. uh, Edward von Habsburg's uh, new book. It's very practical. It's not a, a history book, um, and it's something that is all about how to apply these to your own life, regardless of your state in life and where you're at. So, I strongly encourage you to check that out and pick that up. And, and Edward, any final uh, uh, pearls of wisdom or things you would like to leave uh, the men that are listening this episode? Well, um,
2: never give up. It's worthwhile fighting. A. B. I'll be in the States in the first week of May. I might be somewhere where, where we could meet and shake hands. Okay. Uh, follow my Twitter account. I will, I will put out where I am. And what I would do is, if I don't have a, an, an open reading event, I will try to make a tweet up where I will say, I will be at that and that place at that and that time. if you want to meet me? So you can meet me in person. Um, try to be nice, try to be heroes. Uh, don't go with the flow. Amen. Wow. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we are so grateful. It's
0: an honor to meet you, to get to know you, and to uh, hear from your your lineage, your wisdom, and your experience. And And we're just both so grateful. So thank you.
2: Yes. Thank you. And, uh, and, uh, and see you again one day in Texas, I hope.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. Exactly. We'll trigger David Ross to, to do, to do another event. So um, wonderful. Well, as we like to end each of our episodes, be a man, be a saint.